As John said, we are continuing in our uh, series in the book of Acts. It's called Spirit-Empowered Mission. Uh, but first of all, before we get into that, I just want to tell you, uh, I'll give you a little bit of church history and tell you about one of my heroes, a man called Hugh Latimer, who's going to come up on the screen behind us. Not sure how many people have heard of Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer was the Bishop of Worcester in uh, about 1535, and he's one of my favorite characters in the modern history of the church. He was chaplain to Edward VI, and he's famous for many things, but one of which is pushing to have the Bible translated from English, sorry, from Lat- from, uh, into English from Latin so that the common man could read it for himself. Now, Latimer was uh, part of a, a small but growing band of clergy who began to protest against the Catholic Church, of which they were a part at the time, who believed that some of the Catholic Church's position and practice were not entirely representative of Scripture, and in fact, in some cases, quite exploitative of the poor and the uneducated. Um, you'll know that this period of history is uh, known as the Reformation, and with the Catholic Church on one side of the debate, and uh, Latimer and his mates who followed him on the other side of the debates, uh, they are known as Protestants, so people who essentially protested against the Catholic Church. Now, um, I often read about this stuff, and I'm sure we all have, and I, I sometimes think we gloss over that period of church history without actually really understanding what it was like. To protest against the church in those days was deadly. The, the church was at the height of its powers, and all the kings and queens of Europe followed the infallible edicts of the Pope. And so, essentially, he, the Pope, and the Catholic Church were the most powerful force in the world at that time, and their zeal for the spread and ascendancy of Catholicism often brought with it uh, highly oppressive ideologies. People were tortured. They were executed for denying the faith. Common people were uh, often encouraged to pay money to the church to spring their dead relatives from a miserable afterlife or to purchase blessings. So, and they simply didn't know any better because they didn't have any scriptures of their own that they could access and understand. So along comes Hugh Latimer and his band of reformers saying, look, this, this just isn't right. Every person should have access to the scriptures, not just the educated religious elite. Now, one of the key things that Latimer and the reformers believe was that relationship with God and God's word was for everyone, as I've said, and that ignorance of God's word was essentially ignorance of God and therefore a, an obstacle to being in personal relationship with him. Uh, and at that time, there was only one authorized translation of the Bible, and it was in Latin. Now, if you're an unscrupulous priest, that would allow you to exercise complete religious control over parishioners. And additionally, these reformers disagreed with the concept of papal infallibility, that the Pope couldn't be wrong, and that everything he said was doctrine. So they, they just thought, essentially, the Pope was just like us, just a, just a person, not infallible, uh, and therefore his decrees over how the church should operate were open to question. Now, that was a dangerous breakaway from uh, centuries of religious orthodoxy. Over the past few weeks, we've seen uh, a number of MPs break away from their political parties to form a new independent group, uh, that's their rights, that's the power of living in a democracy. But imagine that doing that invited a penalty of death for those MPs. And imagine that it wasn't just death, but it was a slow, torturous death. 
I don't want to be cynical. I, uh, I'm a big believer in democracy. I pray for our elected officials. But I do wonder, facing those odds, how many of these guys would have stuck to their guns and got ahead with their break. But there they are, happy, smiling with their decision. I wonder how many smiles we'd see up there if they knew that breaking with a political orthodoxy like this could cause the highest court in the land to order that their intestines be ripped out and boiled in front of them, and then their limbs ripped off. You think Brexit's painful? Yeah. <laughs> it's right that we pray for our elected officials, and as I said, I'm a big respecter of authority, uh, but this is essentially the 16th century religious reality of a, of a similar current-day political maneuver. Now, when Mary I ascended the throne in 1553, one of her objectives was to rapidly reverse the rise of Protestantism. Uh, Mary was uh, a Catholic. She was not a docile queen at all. In fact, she was fiercely anti-Protestant, and she set about trying and executing large numbers of Protestants, which earned her a nickname which has followed her through history, and you may recognize, Bloody Mary. Enter Hugh Latimer. Now, by this stage of his life, Latimer was getting on a bit, and uh, along with his assistant, a man called Nicholas Ridley, was tried by one of Mary's courts and uh, sentenced to death by burning at the stake. He, they are now known as two of the Oxford martyrs. And as they stood on the pyre, tied to the stake in the center of Oxford, Latimer is reported to have said these words to his assistant. Play the man, Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Play the man, Ridley. Now, why have I told you this grim story? Well, today's passage actually has some similarities. We see a, a ruling religious class who've um, imprisoned a protester to their practice, Paul, who preached that a saviour had come, had fulfilled every prophecy of the Hebrew Bible, had died to take away our sins, giving us personal reconciliation and personal relationship with God. Jesus had died, had risen from the dead, he had disarmed Satan, and is now seated in heaven on our behalf. That's really inflammatory for a, a Hebrew religious class who had recently executed Jesus as a criminal. Whilst Latimer and his mates disagreed with some of the teachings of the Catholic Church, what Paul was now saying to the religious hierarchy was, was essentially this, the God that you teach about and whose laws you encourage strict adherence to at the threat of death well, this Jesus that I preach not only has equality with that God, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the ultimate image of God. He is the visible expression of God's invisible glory. And by his death and resurrection, he's now opened up the way for every person, not just the religious elite, to enter into the presence of God personally and know him and be known by him. That's our story this morning. Latimer's English Bible was just really building on that good news. It's, it's the gospel. Uh, but Paul went further. He was saying to the religious rulers, what you're teaching people about being right with God and the way to do that is now essentially obsolete because through the death of Jesus, we can all have relationship with God. But more importantly, he is the only way to have this relationship with God. All Latimer was lobbying for was an English Bible. So far in the book of Acts, we've had 22 chapters of Paul going up and down the Mediterranean, preaching this highly contentious message, which separates fathers and sons and divides communities and causes riots and lands Paul where he is today, in prison, about to stand trial for his life. 
for his belief in Jesus. Just as an aside, according to the charity Open Doors, who produce a watch list of countries each year in which human and religious rights are routinely violated, they estimate that approximately a quarter of a billion Christians worldwide are experiencing high levels of persecution right now. And depending on how you count that up, that's as much as one in two Christians worldwide. We should pray. We should pray for the persecuted church. We live in a very blessed land where we don't see this stuff day to day. But we should pray for the persecuted church. There have always been people willing to die for the cause of Jesus. Look around this room. One in two people face the threat of death or high persecution for trusting Jesus each day. Now, if there's one thing that links that statistic to Latimer and Ridley as they burned at the stake, and Paul as he stood on trial in Jerusalem in today's passage, it's that the gospel is alive. It's the power of God for the salvation of mankind. And Ridley knew this as he went to the stake to be executed. And Jesus knew this as he went to the cross. And Paul was convinced of this as he traveled the Mediterranean and, bringing, uh, and the Middle East bringing the good news. And here we are in Acts 23 and 24 today, about to see Paul, in Ridley's words, play the man. Okay, let's read some scripture and catch up where we are in this part of Paul's story. Um, if you want to follow along, it's on page 1120 in the Church Bibles. We're going to scan through quite a large chunk of scripture today. So uh, we're in Acts 23.12, and we're going all the way through to the end of chapter 24. As I said, page 1120 if you want to follow along in your Bibles. Now, we're in the final four or five chapters of the book of Acts, and what happens in this passage and for the rest of the book is actually uh, an outline um, of how God achieves um, what he says to Paul at the end of where we finished last time in Acts 23.11. Paul is in prison in Jerusalem on trumped-up charges. Preaching the gospel has got him in trouble everywhere he's been. And so the religious leaders have accused him of sedition against the Roman state. They've accused him of trying to destroy the temple in Jerusalem. And now he finds himself in prison on these false charges. And he's about to go on trial for his life. Now, as I said, where we left off last time was with God making this promise to Paul in Acts 23.11. So Paul is in prison. It says in 23.11, The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. That's the outline of what we see happen today and to the end of the book of Acts. So Paul is in prison, but God has said that soon you'll be in Rome to preach the gospel. And when God speaks, stuff happens. So watch out for how God works through circumstances and situations and orchestrates this journey from this man on potentially uh, a trial for his life and how he gets from Jerusalem to Rome to achieve what God said. Let's read what happens next on in light of this verse. So can we have that verse back up again for a second? Thank you. So in light of that, kind of keep one eye on that and one eye on what happens next. Acts 23, 12 to 22. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you in the Sanhedrin, petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister, his nephew, 
uh, heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, Some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. But don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They've taken an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Okay, so what we've got here. Paul's in prison. God says to him, soon you'll be in Rome. And a band of 40 zealous Jews have taken a vow not to eat or drink until they've murdered him as he travels from essentially prison to the courthouse. Somehow, his nephew, who kind of enters and exits the story in a, in a bit of a mysterious flash, hears about this and he tells the Roman commander, which, as we'll see in a minute, begins the journey for Paul to Rome. God is on the move. Let's read the next couple of verses, verse 23 and 24. Then he, the commander, called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to the governor Felix. Okay, so now what we've got is the, uh, the Roman official who um, originally put Paul in prison, he obviously senses that it's all about to kick off in Jerusalem. And what you've got to keep in mind here is that the, the presence, the purpose of the Roman presence in the region was essentially about keeping the peace of the Roman Empire to prevent riots from breaking out and to prevent treason uh, uh, against the empire. And if you failed as that, as a Roman official, you would be swiftly removed from post and you could end up even standing trial yourself for your ineptitude. So Paul becomes like something of a political hot potato I don't want to deal with this. Riots and trouble follow this guy wherever he goes. But I can't be responsible for his death uh, because he's so important. And then his followers will kick off. Ah, I don't want to deal with this. So the commander orders that Paul be sent to a town about 60 miles away, a place called Caesarea. Now, Caesarea was the administrative capital in that region, and it was where the governor resided. Seeing how inflamed the Jews are at Paul, and also knowing that Paul is a Roman citizen by birth, he kind of just passes the problem uphill to the governor. Now, what's interesting about this is that the entire detachment of Roman soldiers in Jerusalem, it's thought, was about 1,000 men. The tribune sends 470, nearly half of them, to guard Paul on this journey. So you, you kind of get a sense of how important this issue is to the local rulers, to the religious rulers, and ultimately we'll see to the spread of the gospel. The whole world just seems to be centered on this one man, and he is inching his way towards Rome, just as God said he would. Now, Caesarea sets the scene for the big court case, which will decide Paul's fate. So there are some characters here I want to introduce you to, to help to orientate you to the plot. So first of all, we've got Ananias. We've come across Ananias before. Ananias is the chief priest who is bringing these charges against Paul. Now, Ananias is not thought to be a particularly nice bloke by historians. In spite of the fact that he was the chief priest, he was the highest religious authority, he's described in one commentary that I read as a violent, haughty, gluttonous, and rapacious man. It's not exactly what you want from your local rabbi, is it? And he's a powerful opponent to Paul. 
Now, Ananias comes to the trial with his solicitor, an attack dog, a man called Tertullus, who will make the case for the prosecution. Then we've got the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin were a group of rabbis who were called to sit as a kind of tribunal in the cities of Israel. They were, they were highly powerful and very political. And it was the Sanhedrin council who had tried Jesus, a trial which, as we know, eventually led to his death. So there is much at stake for them here. The Sanhedrin were led by Ananias, and they were made up of Jewish teachers who either didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead at all, or they did, but they didn't believe, of course, that Jesus could have been resurrected. So for Paul to be preaching that Jesus, who the Sanhedrin had wanted dead, was the resurrected Messiah of Israel and all mankind, that would have given them the hump, to say the very least. Then we've got Felix. Now, Felix is the Roman governor charged by Caesar with maintaining law and order and peace in the region uh, as an outpost of Rome. Paul will testify before Felix and face the charge of the Jews led by Ananias and the Sanhedrin. Felix is unusual because he was actually a slave who bought his freedom and then he rose up to become governor. He was known far and wide to be uh, corrupt and adulterer and a brutal, lustful leader. The historian Josephus said of him, he wielded the power of a king with the instincts of a slave. What a footnote in history. And at the center of it all is Paul. And Paul not only believes in the resurrection of the dead, which would have infuriated the Sanhedrin, but he was telling the whole world that Jesus had been resurrected and was the savior of mankind. It would have been white hot. Okay, chapter 24, the courtroom drama. So the main players have all arrived. Paul is in the dock, Ananias has arrived, the Sanhedrin has sat in council, Felix is on the governor's seat, just like Latimer and Ridley, Paul is in a fight for his life, and his only defense is the gospel. Enter character one, Tertullus. Tertullus is the, as I said, the high-profile lawyer, the advocate for the prosecution, and Ananias and the Sanhedrin have hired him because he is the best. He may not have even been a Jew, he may have just been a, a Roman, but they want Paul to go down, so they bring Tertullus with them. In one version of the Bible, Tertullus in chapter 24 lays out his case like this. Most excellent Felix, in respect to Paul, we have found this man a plague. What a start to a trial. From the perspective of the Sanhedrin, Paul is a disease that has infected the Roman Empire and must be exterminated before the disease spreads. That's what it was like for Latimer and Ridley. Imprisonment wasn't enough. Only the crush of death would do. Now, around the time of Latimer and Ridley, it wouldn't be uncommon for people to watch the fires being stoked for their execution or to see the hangman preparing the rope and for them to recant of their beliefs. Remember Latimer's brave words. Play the man, Ridley. Paul has to play the man here. One misspeak and it's curtains for him, but God has said to him, just as you've testified in Jerusalem, so you must also in Rome. And so Paul knows that his best, in fact, his only defense is to testify to God's goodness and to the hope of the resurrection. Let's read his response in 24, verse 14 to 21. So Paul has been accused by Tertullus of all these charges, Paul says, well, I haven't done that stuff. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. 
After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. In other words, I'm not guilty of these charges. I didn't cause any disturbance. I didn't try and destroy the temple. However, I am guilty of this. I worship the God of our fathers. I believe everything that was laid down in the law and written by the prophets. I believe there will be a resurrection of the dead. And I say to you that that's actually the real reason that I'm on trial here today. Because I have a hope in the resurrection of the dead. This whole episode, everything that God has orchestrated in bringing Paul back to Jerusalem from, ironically, Caesarea, back in chapter 21, his arrest and flogging in Jerusalem, his imprisonment, the Jews who vowed to murder him, his mysterious nephew turned informer, the Roman guard accompanying him to Caesarea, the fury of the Sanhedrin, the hatred of Ananias, the trial before Felix, it all boils down to this. Paul has and preaches that we all have a hope in the resurrection of the dead. The pastor Tim Keller says this, resurrection makes Christianity the most irritating religion on earth. I love that. Why is that? Well, you can debate all manner of things, ethics, doctrines, rituals. People will believe what they want to believe. But the resurrection casts a light over all of those things with a certainty and an absoluteness that means that everything has changed. If Christ hadn't been raised from the dead, then We're to be pitied for wasting our lives. But if he was, then you'd have to be insane not to consider what that means for us all. It's all about the resurrection. It's provocative above every other claim. And it has implications that literally touch every part of every life. And that's a problem if you just want to be left alone to believe what you want to believe. It's no wonder that Paul wound up in prison. Listen to some of the other stuff he went through because of his belief in the resurrected Jesus. This is from 2 Corinthians 11. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Imagine that happened today. Imagine we heard that somebody had received 39 lashes for believing in Jesus. It'd be international condemnation. It'd be on every news channel. Paul, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. He's a refugee. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I faced daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That is why... For Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
Brothers and sisters, life can be tough at times. It's rarely as tough as Paul's, but he was able to endure these hardships and keep hope in Christ, and so should we, knowing something else that Paul says, that we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but we are not abandoned, hallelujah. We are struck down, but not destroyed. He goes on to say, We know the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus. Therefore, we do not lose hearts. Though outwardly we're wasting away, our bodies are crumbling. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Because we believe that the resurrected Jesus will one day return at the completion of history, will resurrect the dead and will rehouse us with him in glory, with glorious resurrected bodies, we can say that none of the hardships that we face in life are wasted. Not even for a minute. Struggle and hardship, that's just part of the deal. But they're achieving something. He is achieving something in us. A future glory that far outweighs them all. That's the hope of the resurrection. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor who, during World War II, for failing to pledge allegiance to the Nazi party, found himself, just like Paul, as an opponent of the state. And this soft-spoken academic with wire-rimmed glasses... I mean, he could no more bring down the states than could my nine-year-old daughter. But his gospel message was alive. We don't pledge allegiance to the state. We pledge allegiance to Christ. As a result, he ended up on death row. And as they prepared him to be hanged, he said this. This is for me the end. The beginning of life. The SS doctor who witnessed his death said, I've, I've hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Paul knew that all of his hope, in spite of his hardships, and all of our hope, in spite of our hardships, were these words spoken by Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who believes in me will never die. There is, for those of us who say yes to Jesus, great hope in the resurrection. And I want us to look at four things very quickly to bolster that hope. First thing, Christ is alive. We say this, Jesus is alive, but let's just bottom this out. Israel's final verdict on Jesus was that he was a criminal deserving of death. That's what the advocate Tertullus is trying to say here about Paul. If Jesus had stayed dead, then it would appear that God would agree with that statement. But Jesus is Lord. This most basic confession is nonsense without the resurrection. Ruling creation and being Lord over all is only possible if you're alive to do the job. That God raised him from the dead announces that the curse that Jesus bore on our behalf when he went to the cross is not God's final judgment on this matter, but that God's mercy and God's justice met at the cross, dealt with our sin, rescued us from death, and has given us unshakable hope in an unshakable kingdom for unshakable future glory. 
Death was not something that Jesus deserved. The resurrection was. Second thing, we are alive with Christ. One of the claims of the gospel is that we're alive with Christ now. This is to say that um, when we say yes to Jesus, we receive his spirit and we're united to him. We're kind of fused with him. If you are united to someone, then you share all that they are. In other words, if Jesus is dead, then we're dead. If Jesus is alive, we live. And it gets better. Jesus reigns in heaven today which is to say that our ruling and reigning with him is also guaranteed. His kingdom, his rule and reign advances through us. And if Jesus has eternal joy and perfect relationship with God, then we can expect to enjoy that with him as well. Number three, God's plan for history will succeed. In the book of Revelation, the final chapter of the Bible, the writer describes how he sees a a vision of the end of time. And in that vision, the plan of God, as depicted by a scroll that is sealed shut, is unable to be opened by anybody in heaven or earth throughout history. There is no one that can do what needs to be done to bring about the completion of God's plan. And then he just cries his eyes out. And then someone says to him, don't cry. Look. And Jesus appears, bearing the marks of the crucifixion, and he opens the scroll, and he sets God's plan in motion. The resurrected Jesus is the only one who can bring history to its completion. The resurrection shows that this plan has already begun, and its completion is inevitable. Number four, I love this one. Death is defeated. When we say goodbye to a loved one, that's a truly awful thing. I've said goodbye to some great friends in the last year. Death is a truly awful thing. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing we can do to halt it. When it comes, it simply overpowers you without exception. But go with me on a mind experiment for just a moment. Imagine there was somebody who, when the flu came to him, was able to say, no, I'm not having the flu, and could exercise that kind of power over the disease. We'd be right to say that that person had overcome the power of flu. (coughs) Flu has no power or threat over him. Now imagine that person has the power to prevent flu from affecting anyone simply by saying no. There'd be much hope in that person to keep you healthy, wouldn't you? You you might say that flu not only has no power over him, but that flu has been defeated by him and has in essence got to do whatever he tells it to do. That's how it is with Jesus and death. Jesus has mastery over death, and death will do what it's told by Jesus, which is why when Jesus says, I'm getting up out of the grave that he can. When he says, death, release your hold over those who are currently dead, it must. And when Jesus returns, he will overthrow death entirely. It's why Paul was able to quote one of the Old Testament prophets who says to believers, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The resurrection changes everything, brothers and sisters. Therein is our hope. In Revelation 1, Jesus announces himself like this. I am the living one. I was dead. And now, look, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys to death and Hades. Hallelujah. That's our Savior. The rest of chapter 24 sees Felix doing what Felix does. He, he delays. It's what cowards do. He adjourns the trial, doesn't make a decision. He just delays. No risk, just 
keep the peace. It's a coward's response to a situation that demands an immediate decision. And he just keeps Paul languishing in prison for two years. And he often calls for Paul, it says, to come and visit him and his wife, Drusilla. Now, Paul, it says, as I read earlier on, had come to Jerusalem with money to bless the church. And so um, it says that Felix was hoping that Paul would bribe him with some of this money. But Paul just preaches the gospel to him. And then he speaks to this man. He speaks truth to power as we must speak truth to our culture. It says in verse 25, as Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. He just delays his decision again, except now the ante has upped because it's personal to Felix's own salvation. We have a, a choice to make today, a decision to make today. Don't, don't be like Felix and kick the decision down the street for another day. It, it doesn't work out well for Felix, according to history. Don't let that be said of you. Now, I'm speaking to you whether you are a believer in Christ or not. Because if you're not, then the choice this morning to say yes to him is clear. And I want to make that offer to you today. I'll be here at the end of the service. And if you'd like to know more about following Jesus, please come and speak to me. I would love to chat with you about this afterwards. And I would say this. God has set eternity in your heart. It's an ache. It's deep inside. If you look deeply enough, you'll find it. Come and chat with me about it afterwards. But even if you're not, if you're a Christian this morning, you have a hope in the resurrection. And that demands a certain set of choices to live that out. It means living with urgency to call others into this resurrection life. It means living like you know that death has no victory over you, with joy and confidence to apply the gospel to every part of your life, be that how you love, how you use your money, how you pray, how you relate to the world, but most importantly, how you trust God in all of these things. It requires knowing that whilst you have a responsibility to live up to the righteousness that Jesus has won for you, that you can also rest in the fact that you don't have to do that for yourself. That your greatest hope, your greatest spring of hope and joy should come from what has been done for you. We now enjoy the resurrected Savior's righteousness. This will also mean counting the cost of following Jesus and relinquishing other safer options available to you. Felix-like choices to delay living fully for Jesus, or to try and keep peace with all the little gods that this world offers. When I was preparing this sermon, I really felt God say that he wanted to speak to people who were kind of in the middle of making some of these decisions and uh, choosing to um, honor and worship and follow him at the expense of what that might mean in some other areas and relationships in life. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, he will live even if he dies. By his spirit, he's here this morning. He's beckoning you. He's calling you into deeper relationship, into a life of faith that will drown out every naysaying voice in your heart. It's time for us this morning to play the man. And in so doing, a candle will be lit. The light and the life of Jesus will shine over you and through you, such as can never be put out again. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. King Jesus, thank you that it is said of you, you said of yourself, I am the living one. I was dead and now I'm alive and I hold the keys to death and Hades. Lord, we worship you and we thank you that your death on the cross removes our sin. 
removes our shame because you bore it for us on the cross. We thank you and you rose up on the third day. You rose in victory, overcoming death, disarming Satan, seated now at the right hand of the Father where you ever intercede and pray and call out for us who love you. Thank you that you're at work in every situation and circumstance in our life, that even hardships are achieving something of future glory for us. God, help us this morning to surrender ourselves in you. Help us to galvanize ourselves in you. Help us again to take hope and heart that there is a resurrected king and that there is a resurrection coming for those who say yes to you. Lord Jesus, we glorify you in all that you are. Amen.